Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond, and today I'm joined by Gail Carragher, who's speaking to us from the other side of the pond. Hello, Gail. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for getting up. At, oh, actually, no, it's late night for me, but it's mid-afternoon for you, isn't it? It is. It is. It's not even yet tea time, although I do have tea. Oh, you should always have tea. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll just hide my cup of coffee around the corner and hope you don't notice. <laughs> I, I'll pretend it's tea. <laughs> so for those listeners of ours who aren't familiar with your work, could you please give us a brief rundown of your books? Uh, so I have a long-running series of books um, in a in kind of a verse called the parasol verse and uh, what I'm best known for is the first uh, series which is the parasol protectorate series that starts with the book called soulless Um, and they're kind of comedies of manners with a lot of slapstick and humor uh, set in an alternate historical Victorian era that has a lot of steampunk and supernatural elements so yeah, and then I have a YA series set in the same world, and now a, a new um, adult series and a bunch of novellas as well. So I really like, I've always admired and liked uh, authors like um, Mercedes Lackey, who sort of create a Samber box and then play around in it. So I always wanted to build a career that way, too. Fantastic. Well, tell us about you in particular and what it was that made you decide to write and what in particular brought you to hit upon the idea of soulless. So if you give us a brief rundown of of what soulless is and and how you came to that idea. All right. So um, I've always written. I'm one of those who just as soon as I started reading, I kind of started writing. I always joke with my mom that she should have known the moment she would tell me a story and I'd be like, that's not how the story ends. And then I would retell it to her with the ending that I thought was the correct one. (laughs) Like six, right? So she should have known from the get-go that uh, I would be a writer. (laughs) Um, So Solace is, it's kind of, I really did exactly what people always say, which is I wrote the book that I wanted to read. I'm a super voracious reader, and I read kind of widely in all genre, commercial genre categories. And so I was, you know, got really into paranormal romance and urban fantasy when it was big in the 90s. But I kept thinking, this seems really dark to me, and I kind of want it to be lighter-hearted, and why can't it be set in the historical era, and why don't women ever write comedy in genre? Why is it all male writers all the time, and why can't I have a really strong female protagonist, but she doesn't actually have to kill things all the time? So I had all of these things that I wanted from books, and I kept kind of waiting for someone else to write it, and finally I was just like, basically, clearly I have to write it. Um, And I was pretty sure since it was a mashup of all of these different genres and all of these different things that I wanted that no one would be interested in buying it because how could you market such a creature? But um, I just kind of had to write it. So I just sort of started this thought experiment about what would happen if the supernatural creatures that the Victorians had in the Romantic Gothic literary movement actually existed. So if we had these creatures born of science at the same time as as these sort of remnant creatures left over from the earlier Gothics, like vampires and werewolves, and what if they were integrated into Victorian society? Um, So how would history be different, and how would science be different in, in a reaction to them? And I just sort of, kept, sort of kept, I have a kind of a scientific approach to the whole thing. I kept kind of carrying on with this thought experiment. And I finally was like, so what if what makes you survive and turn into a paranormal creature is explained by scientists of the time period as having too much soul? So if you have an excess of soul, then you you survive this conversion and you can become an immortal. And so then you have apex predators. And I'm like, well, we need a balance for apex predators. So I came up with this idea of, a person who's very, very rare, but who has uh, no soul whatsoever and is essentially kind of a, an electrical ground for the supernatural. So, and that's kind of how Alexia, my first main character, was born. So her, her, she doesn't really have any intrinsic like abilities herself, but she can, she can touch a vampire or a werewolf and she makes them human or, or mortal again. Um, and so that's, and then the, kind of the whole, everything kind of spawned from there. I imagine your house is kind of littered with notebooks with all these wonderful ideas and brainstorms. <laughs> and what happens if this and this and this? Yeah, exactly. That's and it's totally and that kind of way my mind works is also the way my humor works. So like I, I just kind of look at the world and think, well, what if you just change the way you look at it differently? Um, like one of my approaches to writing the steampunk aspect and the alternate history aspect is not to actually change the history 
as it occurred, but more to kind of re-explain it. So, for example, um, Henry VIII still broke with the Church of uh, with the, the Catholic Church and formed the Anglican Church, but he didn't do it because of the the whole wanting to get a divorce thing. That was that was a front. He really wanted to integrate vampires and werewolves into his army and into his government and strategy for global expansion. And so, um, but the Catholic church, of course, does not approve of that. So he invented this excuse to break with the church. So I like, I just go back and look at history and kind of like twist things. And it also explains other stuff. So if you have vampires integrated into Victorian society, that explains why men would want to wear high collars. So it hides the bite marks and you know, women would be very attracted to super pale skin if vampires are kind of dictating what, what is fashionable and fashion forward. So suddenly it makes all my, I mean, if you're using werewolves in the front line, that gives the British army as this huge advantage that other cultures don't have. And now suddenly it makes perfect sense why they would have an empire because <laughs> they're making use of the supernatural. So. Oh, absolutely. So you were talking about your writing being a mashup of all these different things. And I imagine you must be an absolute nightmare for booksellers as to where they put it on all their shelves. So how would you, <laughs> how would you categorize your writing? What genre do you think it should be listed under? Because when I looked at the Amazon categories for Solace, they listed it as science fiction and fantasy steampunk. But really, at its heart, I kind of feel it's a romance, isn't it? Is yeah, it all, the first it? book is a romance. In fact, I have a bunch of male readers now who come sidling up to me at conventions and be like, I can't believe that you had me write a romance. And I was like, well, I had you all of the first five books that are, are parodies of the Gothic literary movement. So, and romance of course comes out of the Gothics. So like, so the first one is a parody of a Gothic, uh, of a, a Gothic romance. And the second one is a parody of a kind of a, a traditional relocation Gothic, like the castle of Otranto or something. Um, Cause they go off to the Scottish Highlands to a, a, a crumbling castle. Um, so, so yeah, it is really hard to define them. Um, in fact, if you look at the spine for the very first edition of my book, it says fantasy and horror on it. <laughs> and there's, it is, if it's, it's many things, but I don't think it's very horrific at all. Um, Although, again, horror comes out of the Gothic. So maybe they were just kind of desperately scrabbling. It actually worked very much in my favor at the beginning because because bookstores, and this was in the days of, of borders here in the States as well as Barnes & Noble. So there were, there were more options for foot traffic in bookstores, and they did not know where to put the book. <laughs> so they would um, put it into the romance section, and then they'd put it in with the, parent, with the um, urban fantasy, and then they'd also put it in with sci-fi and fantasy, and a couple times it snuck over into YA. And then because they were so confused, they'd take it out and just have a stack of it next to the tills and kind <laughs> of hand sell it to people. And it had this crazy little burble of a movement that was partly as a result of a confusion which i think probably you could never recreate now but it was just a, a, a you know par for the course at the time um and it did partly did so well because <laughs> no one knew where to categorize it it's funny because um sort of the end result of this is that i will get um fans of my books come up and ask me to recommend other books that are like mine and i'm kind of i kind of have to turn to them and and say which aspect do you want them to be like? I mean, are you after more of the humor or the history or the urban? Like, which part do you want? Because it is so many different bits. It is. And I mean, that's the, uh, like I say, that's, it must be a nightmare for booksellers. But for readers like me, it's just fantastic. You've got a little bit of everything. And like you say, it's taking a genre and turning it around and making it something brand new. Yeah. I think if you, if you wanted to define them as anything, they would be gothic. And of course, there isn't a category for that anymore. <laughs> There is, isn't a a, a um, category for steampunk gothic or comedy gothic, I would say, both of which yours fall under. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, comedy gothic is definitely something we could get on with, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, more of comedy gothic. That would be so <laughs> fun. So I have an inkling that you and Jasper Ford have invented a whole new genre. <laughs> <laughs> I love his stuff so much, so much. I mean, for the start, there's the wonderfully bizarre names such as Thursday Next and Asher on Black and Ford's part. And then I'm going to have to say this very slowly so I get it right. Alexia Tarabotti and Miss Ivy Hisslepenny on your part. Yes. <laughs> and then there's all this bizarre technology and the mixing of genres. So, I mean, would you yeah. agree with that statement that you and Ford are sort of, excuse the pun, forging ahead? Or are there other I... writers who set you on this course? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, I guess... Uh, I would call Ford almost sort of surrealist 
genre fiction. Um, I guess you could call my stuff surrealist historical genre fiction. <laughs> I don't know. In in a in a sort of essence of like the surrealist painter's kind of surrealism, where um, it, it's sort of light and humorous and airy with these weird dripping clocks, and you're not quite sure where you are. Um, but both of us are, are not afraid to be kind of whimsical and silly. I think uh, I would say that he and I would both say we owe a lot to Douglas Adams and probably Terry Pratchett as well. But they more formally set Douglas Adams into um, science fiction and Terry Pratchett into to fantasy. So I guess we're each just forging ahead with that idea in a in a different world. I mean, he's doing sort of contemporary alternate timeline stuff and I'm doing, you know, steampunk stuff. So maybe that's, but the, I think partly that is just, there's so little of it. There's, there's very little comedy, comedy writing of the style of say PG Woodhouse or um, Gerald Durrell or even James Harriet to a certain extent, although they were writing nonfiction, but this idea of this kind of humorous breezy way of writing uh, isn't very common in, genre um so so perhaps i'm tempted to com compare myself to the the aforementioned simply because there aren't any others to compare to i think definitely we could say that you're inventing your own genre here and now by the sounds of things <laughs> i hope so i'd love to be more i mean as a reader the thing i always hunger for is more humor but i really am a devoted genre reader so it is it's it hurts to find humor it's always easy to find something that will make me cry or upset my tummy i don't like i don't like gore or anything so you know it will make me kind of wince or is really really dark but it, it's it's always hard to find something that's genuinely light-hearted and will make me laugh but still has a lot of the archetypes and tropes that i i crave as a genre reader so i hope there's more i hope it hope it keeps coming I think I read on your blog somewhere that you said you have a note that you put beside your computer that says, uh, Gail, don't forget the funny. So yes. do, you, do you find you get kind of drawn into the plot and do forget to be funny and go, oh, I have to go back and put in something funny about custard tarts or something like that? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. In fact, um, so sometimes I'll write the rough draft and there'll be just uh, their plot funny moments. So it's just the, the way the pl my plots get very absurd. And so just the way the plot has come out. I, my characters will be in a, a situation that is just intrinsically funny. But a lot of the other kinds of humor, like what I would call descriptive humor or um, wit humor, where two characters are talking back and forth, or um, like rule of three humor, where something's mentioned in one chapter and then it's re-mentioned, and then by the third time it's mentioned, it becomes an inside joke between me and my reader. Those things tend to happen in, in edit passes. Like, I need to go back through and fill those in. Um, and I, I, I mean... One of the tricks with humor or speaking as a writer is that it is an instrument of pacing. So by adding in humor, um, I, I keep I keep the pace of my books up so I can have, you know, what would ostensibly be a very slow scene because it's a bunch of characters, you know, drinking tea, <laughs> but and nothing's exploding and no one's running anywhere. But it can be very kind of fast paced and, and peppy because of the wit in the dialogue or because of a little slur about, you know, someone's hat looking like a jellyfish or something. So <laughs> I, I admire when other writers do it and I'm always hungry for it, partly because I think um, it, it can add to the, to the speed in which you are reading the book and, and, and how you feel as you're consuming the book um, as well as just because I like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so in September, 2010, Solus debuted. And then in December, 2013, a manga version was published. Now, Solus seems both an unusual choice of book to be turned into a comic, and yet at the same time, just absolutely perfect for us. So <laughs> tell us who made the first suggestion of a manga version and how you felt to see your characters come to life in that format. Um, so, well, Solus was out in 20, 2009. It was in October of 2009. Um, and that's actually when, it, when the manga thing began. So um, in addition to this weird thing where Solus didn't get categorized in any area and so it ended up dispersing sort of throughout bookstores and strange places um there was a, a series of events that occurred at, at bea that year so my my publishing house brought me to bea and um tor who is the major u.s publisher that produces genre uh, science fiction and fantasy happened to have pulled out that year um and a bunch of other things that, that have to do with um, new york moving towards a trade paperback size book rather than a mass market book 
all resulted in the fact that um, Solus was being given away in arc form at BEA, and it was one of the few that was sci-fi fantasy and was um, mass market sized. And so a bunch of people sort of just went home from BEA that evening with Solus in their back pocket and kind of picked it up and opened it on the train home in New York <laughs> and then came back the next day all excited about it. Um, so it was, it was, it was this very strange experience for me as a, as a brand new baby author to have this unknown book go out on Friday and then a bunch of people come and want to meet me on Saturday from the book industry in New York city and just be like, what, what happened? Um, but during this chaos, I look over at the booth next to me and there is this adorable young man with twinkly eyes who's just basically hand giving away my book who's just like you want to read this it's so funny it's so cute it's so sweet it's just he's just handing it out and I hadn't been introduced to him I had no idea who this person was he wasn't part of the, the orbit team so far as I knew um, and so eventually there's a little bit of a lull and I kind of sidle over to him and I'm like so hey like thanks so much for for bragging about my book and it turns out that his name is Kurt and he's in charge charge of um, Hachette's manga, Yen Press. And he just says, you know, hey, someone just passed me this to read and I really loved it. And if you ever would consider a manga edition, just keep us in mind. And I was like, oh my God, I love manga. I'm a big Black Butler fan. And so we just started talking manga for a while. Um, and then it, and then it kind of fizzled out as these kind of conversations do, but I kept it in mind because um, I really do love manga. It's one of my it's the only graphic novel form I still read from my comic book days. So um, flash forward to Changeless, which came, came out about six, six or seven months later. Um, and Changeless hit the New York Times and kind of everything changed in my life at that moment. And um, I turned to my agent at the time and I said, well, right now, <laughs> while I have my first New York Times, uh, would be a great time to reach out to Kurt and say, hey, about that manga, would you, are you guys still interested, you know? nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> and, um, and she did and they jumped on board and, uh, yeah, I sold it for peanuts. I was really like not in it for the money. I was way more interested in just seeing someone else interpret my words in a different form. And that's kind of how I treated it. So Rem, who's the artist, I let her just take kind of complete interpretive creative control. I had, I had veto power. So I could say, I looked at each chapter, um, but I very rarely exercise my, um, like, I, I think I could count on one hand how many times I said, actually, you need to redraw that. And it was always a matter of, of like Victorian etiquette, <laughs> you know, like in one scene, <laughs> one scene, she had Connell sitting at the head of the table but they're they're out for dinner at someone else's house so i was like he just would never sit at the head of the table there's no way so you know things like that um yeah so that's how it happened and oh my goodness so many of my uh my epic fantasy friends are so jealous because it really really is rare for any book to get a graphic novel adaptation of any kind so um i'm very jealously guard my my three my three mangas. I love them so much and I feel so, so lucky that I got them. So which three books have been turned into manga then? Soulless, Changeless and Blameless. Um, what about the ones that come after? Are we going to have future manga? Two. No. Um, we stopped at Blameless. The first three, those are the first three Parasol Protectorate books and they seat very well together as a trilogy. Um, there's a kind of drastic seed change and a big time jump between the third book and the fourth book. And, um, and it doesn't, it just, it didn't really make sense to do it. By that time, Ren had been drawing my books for like four years and she, she wanted to do her own stuff. And I didn't really want to keep going with a different artist. Um, so, you know, I just, it felt, it felt right to end at three and we were all happy with that. So, and yeah, and I think they're great, and they stand well together. They do indeed look very beautiful. Yeah, she did a wonderful. The clothing is so gorgeous. <laughs> like she really did the most beautiful dresses, which of course uh, I'm very invested in. Well, absolutely. <laughs> now I understand that you received a Master's of Science in Archaeological Materials at Nottingham University in 2000, and a Master. Yes, I did. Yeah, and a Master of Arts in Anthropology at the University of Santa Cruz in 2008. So yeah. how does the love of archaeology and anthropology fit in with writing steampunk, or is there no connection <laughs> at all? Well, 
I think, um, I mean, steampunk owes a great deal, again, back to the gothics with this idea that setting is character, that in steampunk, the setting and the technology is so important to, it should be to the, to the, to the story and the characters and everything. And I guess that ties into my philosophy as an archaeologist, which is just that objects are very indicative of culture and a kind of personal expression. A lot of my characters have like an object that they're associated with. So Alexia, my first book, she has this parasol that's kind of a Swiss army knife of parasol (laughs) that develops over the course of the books to be more and more outrageous and to have more and more things that it does. Um, And then Sophronia in my second book, she has a bladed fan. She's an assassin character, assassin spy. Um, And so she develops a sort of affinity for this, um, this this particular kind of weapon which is the bladed fan and and so on and so forth so each and you know ivy who's alexia's best friend has these crazy hats and i think that that idea of this visual representation and this object association with characterization is definitely part of my archaeology background it's also how i look this sort of as I talked about before, this idea of kind of rewriting history rather than setting history on an alternative path, just re-explaining what was. It's a very archaeological approach to kind of ignore the historical written record and just be like, well, this is what I see happened. So how do I explain that with this new set of evidence that I've provided for myself with the presence of you know, vampires and werewolves? So I think that's the archaeology side of me coming out. The, the very sort of detailed and, and um, visually focused. Yeah, I can definitely see yeah. how that was, that's incorporated in your books. Now, and also this, this idea that scientists, when there's a supernatural element kind of present in a society, like the scientists are really interested in figuring out why and why some humans survive being bitten and some don't. And, you know, to the point where in the first book, they're vivisecting vampires. They're like cutting them open to try and figure out what's going on. No, and no, I no. Think... Spoiler. Spoiler alert for people who haven't oh. read it. <laughs> Sorry. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> it's not that big a spoiler. Um, but it's it's just sort of like that's that that would archaeology has its roots in the Victorian era. That's when my science began um, as a science. And so kind of I feel like I kind of have a, a window into the way Victorian scientists might have thought about these sorts of things. And so I um, yeah, and so I I, I react archaeologically and kind of weirdly scientifically to all of these supernatural elements um, which is a kind of a steampunk way of looking at it (laughs) excellent now I'm glad you mentioned your finishing school series because as much as I enjoyed Solus I have to admit that you stole my heart with your YA series it was just wonderful Um, that's not uncommon actually I have a a number of people who are like yeah I I mean Solus was the big hit for me but um, there's a hardcore group who really prefer and love the um, the young adult series. So, and I'm guessing I'm they're excited. not all young adults; they are adults no. as well. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, I mean, Etiquette and Espionage is the first one in that, and it's science fiction steampunk. That's what it's described as on Amazon, which I think is a bit closer to the mark, as there's certainly a lot more focus on uh, yes. science and the dirigibles. In sorry, yes. dirigibles. Told you I get it wrong in your YA <laughs> series, uh, which has in fact led me to wonder whether you have a special consultant engineer on hand when you write these books, <laughs> or whether you dream it all up. I have a couple of so um, I have a bunch of friends who are like gamer geek types. So occasionally I'll call them up and be like, "I need a device that goes from here to here." You know, they're like dungeon masters, tabletop dungeon masters, and stuff like that. So I need a device that does this thing, but has these restrictions under the auspices of the plot. You know. So I'll run things by them, you know, we'll go on hikes together or something and I'll be like, okay, let's talk about this, uh, you know, the, um, the tent poles in Changeless were an idea from a, from a, from a gamer geek friend of mine. So I do call on them, but not so much anymore. I think they, they helped me kind of train my brain. I just, I'm writing um, the third book in the Custer Protocol series right now, which is the, the sort of spinoff from these other two. And, um, I just came up with the most bizarre um, dirigible flying airship thing that I'm beyond delighted with. <laughs> Can't wait for the world to know about it in, you know, a year and a half. Oh, I want to know <laughs> but, about it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and, but what you picked up on with the YA is, is very intentional on my part. So um, I really did uh, want to make the YA series kind of more steampunky. Um, because I was u- losing a lot of the urban fantasy threads by kind of the very nature of the book, which is a um, it's kind of a, a spy training school. So I'm pulling on a lot of the 
um, traditional Victorian boarding school books, like The Little Princess, for example. Yeah. Um, so, so I was putting my characters mostly static in space and time on this school through the course of, of the next four years or so. And so by its very nature, that's not that's, I'm denied kind of paranormal romance and urban fantasy style plot devices because of that choice. Um, and so I was reaching instead to, um, you know, kind of more... John le Carre style spy thriller things where where um, we're trying to figure out a wide scale conspiracy without too much actual physical movement because they're young adults so they can't, they can't just go tearing off although of course they eventually do um, so that sort of naturally led me to pulling more from the steampunk side of things so you obviously chose Dartmoor as the place where the dirigible hovers the most. And I wondered, yeah. I wondered why. Did you kind of like visit it and go, gosh, this place is just lacking in dirigibles? <laughs> I actually partly grew up there. Ah. Uh, my mother is an expat and uh, she's a Londoner by birth. But by the time I came along, her parents had moved out to a tiny town called Topsham, which is near Exeter, which is right near Dartmoor. Um, and so pretty much from about age eight or so, I was shipped off most summers to England. <laughs> My parents were like, we don't want her around. We'll just send her off <laughs> to the grandparents. Um, so I was the little American granddaughter who would, who would drop in and visit. And um, our school systems are slightly different. So I, I even went to school a little bit because I love school. So if I turn up in summer vacation and the British school is still going, my grandparents were like, you just go to school. It's like, okay. Um, so yeah, so I was just so familiar with that place and I I really love to write about an area that I that I know well and it's not necessarily just because I want to stay faithful to it but it's also because kind of as a writer I feel like if you've been somewhere you have access to these sense memories that that Google Maps or researching something really can never give you like the smell of a place the way the wind moves the the way the light is um, so so I'm, I'm really, I really like to write places I've been into my books. So um, Dartmoor was a real natural choice for me. It has such a magical quality to it anyway. It, it does. And you can definitely imagine dirigibles hovering above it. It's, uh, it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> Disappearing into the mist as it rises, you know. I keep waiting to see. Is it Beast of Bob Moore? Is that going to be something that comes up in the future, do we think? Probably not. Well, I mean, I have, there is a little, if you've gotten through, um, the finishing school series, there is a little twist, a sort of boogeyman twist at the very end, which yeah. could, be, could be the beast. But <laughs> no, I never got into the bogs or, or anything associated with them, which is strange given I'm an archaeologist. I probably should have at some point. <laughs> Maybe that's a, a future book. Maybe. There's always more ideas. It's great. There it's is. wonderful to be a writer. There's always something more. Uh, now, your YA series focuses on a group of students. So what inspired you with those particular characters? Were they based on yourself and old school friends or were they pure invention? Yes. Oh, <laughs> no, there they're we totally go. Are we, are to we the... allowed to know about your school friends and yourself? <laughs> of course. Uh, it's, it's, in my group of friends, it's like Grist of the Mel. There's a, there's a whole little handful of us who are all writers and, you know, we'll be hanging out and something, someone will say something funny and some, one of the writers in the room will bid in and just be like, that one's mine. It's going in my next book. <laughs> The friends are all totally like accustomed to it at this juncture. Um, yeah, it, to the point where I actually um, I met and made good my first real close dear friends in high school, and um, they're still some of my closest friends. And one of them still beta reads my work sometimes, or I should say alpha reads. She doesn't do it much anymore, but occasionally I'll still slide her a manuscript. And she's the character, uh, Dimity is loosely based on her. And so she's reading, Dimity is Sophronia is my main character, Dimity is her best friend. And so this particular friend of mine is reading through as a beta reader. And because she is like Dimity, she doesn't quite realize Dimity's a little out of it. She's very smart, but she's kind of out of it um, and so this friend does not realize what's going on until about halfway through the book and then the margin note is like hey and then, and then shortly further down it says i would not have said that <laughs> like you need to differently. so she she realized it and then started to give me like character tips <laughs> so yeah they know um i mean i draw very heavily on each for each book on on my own personality, obviously, but, you know, also 
all of my friends and there were elements of me and all of my characters always. But um, for me, the Alexia books, so the, the, the Parasol Protectorate series, the first one it was very much kind of me in my 30s, kind of trying to find the, the perfect job, figure out home and house and all of these things. And that's sort of Alexia's journey, like finding, knowing she wants to help fix the world and find where she fits into that and, and what, her, what her use is in life. And I think for a lot of us in our 30s, that's our path. But Sophronia's a high school student and so she's that high she's that so she's finding her friendship group and figuring out like literally who she is and who she will be as an adult and then what I'm working on right now is basically the college years so it's like all of those things you learn if and when you go away to university or when you travel you know the the experience of coming back and seeing that your parents have gotten older and realizing that your identity is very much separate from them in a way that you never get until you leave home so the, so like each one of my series is, is an exploration of a different time essentially in a young woman's life so so is the so, college series going to follow Sophronia and her friends, or is it a brand new set of characters? No, the college series follows Alexia's, um, is the spinoff from the, from the Parasol Protectorate books. So it's after, it's more towards the turn of the century. And it's also, I'm also exploring the idea of capers, so the caper dynamics. So it, it is a team book. There's a, main, a mostly main character, but it's very much the sort of team friendship group. They have this kind of high tech dirigible and they're sort of queen victoria's fixers they're they're sort of sent out to try and fix the empire or find new supernatural creatures uh, but of course the empire is is falling apart at this juncture in in history so um but that's the college years basically (laughs) so you said that uh, alexia was you in your 30s um, and if it was any other writer i'd have gone oh do you own a parasol then but i know that you own (laughs) seven is it Nine, I own nine. nine. <laughs> yeah, I kind of love parasols. I, I should say that most of them were before I wrote those books. I just love them. Um, I'm pretty fair skinned. I live in California, I, but I, you know, have that British complexion, so I uh, I need protection from the sun. And I've always sort of loved the idea of of parasols. So I've always collected them. I swear. Fantastic. I used to do and still do do historical reenactment. So um, so I did use them to play, but I used them. <laughs> Do you do historical reenactment in sort of the period you're writing in or all periods? Well, I did here. The Renaissance Fair is very popular. So I did the Renaissance Fair for years and years. Um, but we also have something local called the Dickens Fair, uh, which is exactly this time period. It's um, I think it's 1860. So it's a little before the Alexia books, but um, 18 late 1860s. So, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I would dress up and go to that for 10 years. I worked that fair every year <laughs> as an author or just for a bit of fun no as a worker i um i worked for a corset booth actually so ah. it certainly helped i must say that becoming a steampunk author and going to steampunk events now i am well equipped with clothing and corsets and you know everything you could want in terms of um taking what was authentic historical garb and, and just turning into kind of fun steampunk garb. I was like, oh, this is, this is the perfect career for me. I'm prepared. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you say anything you want. I think, to be honest, I want your wardrobe by the sounds of things. <laughs> so, you were not the first to say that. <laughs> so if Alexia is you in your 30s, which one of the characters in the YA series do you think was you at school? Were you really Sophronia or are you actually? I was, I was very like Sophronia, actually. Um, not completely. Again, like there's no one-to-one correlation, I don't think. Um, but I was a lot. So Sophronia is way more withdrawn than Alexia, and way more withdrawn than Prudence. Prudence, who's the the main character of the of the Custer Protocol series, the one I'm working on now, um, is super outgoing and quite outrageous, and definitely um, a leap first and then look later kind of girl. Um, Sophronia is way more cautious and. But I, I, I think I was more like that in high school. I was more reserved and I was more – and I, I suspect that a lot of us are just because it's part and parcel of being a teen is you spend a lot of your time observing social interactions in an effort to kind of try and understand them and figure out where you might fit. And so I took that kind of natural inclination I think that a lot of especially nerdy or geekier kids have and I 
made that an advantage in this universe because that is the perfect trait you need if you want to then manipulate society, if you want to become a spy. Um, so Sophronia is kind of like that. I feel like I was more like that. I was definitely more introverted um, in high school. So thinking about the YA series, where did you come up with lesson ideas such as escape within a confined <laughs> area, the fine art of dodging? <laughs> you, you, you seem to have a wealth of these wonderful ideas of what young girl spies would, would study. Where do you come up with the ideas? Well, some of them are mine. And frankly, some of them I threw out to my fan group after. Uh, so after a couple of books were out, I was based, I ran a competition at one point where I was like, come up with new names and you'll, you know, like, and, and I gave away a bunch of the third book before it came out. Um, and you might get into the book, you know, so it's and it, like, I guess two or three of them leaked into the books later on. Um, but I'm really kind of intimately connected to my readers and my readers tend to be just these kind of wonderful open, generous, outrageous, mostly women um, who really are delighted to interact. Um, so I'll, I'll ping them. I'll ping my fan group all the time or, or my, um, my fan group is on uh, Facebook or I'll just go on Twitter and run a little poll. Like I'm trying to decide between two character names or something and I will just put a poll up on Twitter and be like, you guys decide. I can't be bothered, you know. Um, so what's your Facebook group called so that people can go find it? It's called the Parasol Protectorate Facebook group. Okay. <laughs> pretty is that which is the first series um and it's i am pretty hands-off about it actually at this juncture it's it's turned itself into this sort of little internet safe space where people just talk about tea and uh, octopi and beautiful clothing um and they're very encouraging to each other and people will post pictures of cosplay and it's it's awesome it's one of my favorite places to hang out on the internet actually because everybody's just there to kind of have a laugh and relax a little bit i i feel like i might be telling off the wrong person but isn't the plural of octopus octopuses rather than octopus? it is it is i get i get latin accidentally i'm sorry <laughs> it's okay it's uh, like a disease <laughs> to be honest octopi sounds far more regal than octopuses which just sounds a bit random yes it sounds a, a little sexy um i will say that i think technically it's octopodes <laughs> but oh there we go you know, nobody does that one I, I feel like i've come away learning something <laughs> So your parasol verse, as you call this this world you've created, has werewolves and vampires in it. But will it ever have zombies? Well, I had zombie porcupines in uh, in one of the Alexia books at one point. So there is because somebody wanted to know about zombies, and I was like, "Well, it's me, so I'll make them zombie porcupines." Um, but no, it's just the way that the sort of pseudoscience works in the universe zombies don't really work under that context mm. but what there are are as we discover um in this new series is different kind of evolutionary versions of vampires and werewolves so different parts of the world with different ecosystems those two types of species evolve differently and of course i draw heavily on the mythology of of whatever place we visit. So um, in Prudence, which is the first Crested Protocol book, they go to India uh, under the British Raj and uh, encounter the the Indian versions of um, vampires and werewolves, which are, of course, substantially different from the European ones. Fantastic. Uh, so that kind of thing. Yeah. So with names like Lord Dingle Proops and Bumbersnoot <laughs> in your YA series, I had to practice those, as well, <laughs> as well as a host of comic scrapes for the characters get into... It seems that your YA series is pure and jolly escapism. I mean, is yes. that true, or do you think there are deeper meanings to be gleaned from it? Oh, there's always never discount that uh, comedy is an incredibly powerful tool for for affecting people's mindsets. But um, but I consider my stuff primarily entertainment, and uh, I kind of I'm willing to own frivolous and fluffy and you know all of these things um, because I want what I want more than anything when people read my books is just to leave them smiling. And if that if you're not like smiling when you're reading my stuff, then please put it down and go read something else because <laughs> it's not right for you. Um, that's that's pretty much all I want. But that doesn't stop them their or me from having certain themes that I, I think mostly subconsciously inject into my book because of who I am as a person um, that are often sort of themes of um, inclusivity and open-mindedness. Um, I'm really a fan of, of uh, for example, the heroine's journey, which uh, one of the principles of which is this idea that um, accomplishment is succeeded 
through assistance and it's not a weakness to ask for help. In fact, one of the greatest strengths is to ask for help and to, you know, go to, go to your friends and to network and then achieve something through a cohesion rather than this um, prevailing and I think rather damaging idea that it should be one man alone against the universe. Um, so none of my books ever use um, The Hero's Journey, for example. Uh, so, like, there, are, there's, so there's definitely stuff in my books that uh, often have to do with the importance of friendship, uh, building your own family, female empowerment and acceptance and things like that, uh, to the point where, like, for example, here in the U.S., my first series is, is just in hugely popular in places like Texas. And I kind of want to be like, do you know what your girls are reading? <laughs> like, probably good that you don't. This little book with this little cheerful pink cover is like going in and um, teaching them all sorts of things you probably don't want them to know and they don't even realize they're getting uh, because they are smiling the whole time. You talk about smiling I noticed there was a a bit on your website about a a young girl who wrote to you and said how it was great escapism for her. Um, Oh my gosh those are the ones that cut up so I get I do get I get quite a bit of you know fan mail I guess is the is the way to put it um but sometimes I get these ones that are just heart-wrenching because I do at heart have this one kind of I guess mandate to myself which is just make people smile and like perhaps they'll laugh and if I'm really lucky I'll make them laugh on public transport and they'll be mildly humiliated and I'll feel their <laughs> um and if I'm really really lucky I'll keep them up all night laughing which is like the only thing an author wants more than anything is to get those complaints the next morning where they're like I can't go to work because you kept me up reading all night like, yes win for the author <laughs> um but I do get these um, some of these emails that are just really heart-wrenching. And I think the one you're talking about is this girl who was in Bangkok during the riots a couple of years ago. And she was basically like, I, I hold up in my apartment and read your books because it was the only thing that took my mind on the fact that, you know, civil <laughs> unrest and, and a possible coup was going on in the streets outside my house. I mean, and that kind of thing is just... I had another girl who was like, I, I read these books out loud to my twin sister while I was donating her bone marrow, <laughs> and, you know, because she was dying of cancer and uh, and the nurses kept laughing. And, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, those are just the most amazing things that you get to do if you're an author is to put this thing out into the world um, and have it touch people in touch complete strangers Um which is yeah, I, like I can't, I I can't even believe when I get that that kind of response. It's it's so amazing. Well, it does seem to be you know the pinnacle of being a writer. And I know J.K. Rowling has written about how she's got uh, letters from fans who said it's helped them through abuse or you know very trying <laughs> times because it's just it's just pure escapism and it, it just takes them so out of their world and they're so grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean God, how how I mean I have. I have um, a very popular um, LBGT character. I have a cross-dressing um, woman lesbian character in, in the Parasol Protector series. She's actually, as a child, she's also in the um, Finishing School series. It's Vive. And um, and I have a whole cadre of, of readers who really closely identify with her. And, you know, have, I've had, I had one girl come up to me and be like, it was because of reading about this character that I, I knew who I was as a sexual person human being and like it helped me come out it helped me come out to my family because I could just pass them my books and be like okay so how do you feel about the Madame LeFou character (laughs) and um is she all right are you okay with her because that might be me (laughs) um and that you know that's just mad like that's that is the closest we get to real world magic as writers I think I mean earlier on you mentioned um the hero and the heroine journey so for our listeners who are writers, um, they'll obviously know about Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Uh, for those of you who are unaware of it, uh, Joseph Campbell wrote a book entitled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And this book introduced the concept of the hero's journey, which underpins many stories. But Gail, you mentioned the heroine's journey. So why don't you tell us about the hero's journey, the heroine's <laughs> journey, and your thoughts on it in general? <laughs> um, so I have a minor in classic, um, and my focus... Um, the way my university ran it was you also, if you were taking a minor, you also did a focus within that minor. And mine was on gender studies in the classic literature. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very interested in this topic. Um, and so uh, almost everyone is, is 
familiar or should be familiar with with the hero's journey, I think, at this juncture from from Campbell. Um, But there is a heroine's journey, and and most, um, when it's being taught in school, they usually draw on uh, the Demeter myth, the um, Isis myth, and the Ishtar myth from from three different cultures in order to kind of um, develop this idea, much in the way that Campbell um, drew on Gilgamesh. And some of the principles are sort of the same, this idea of sort of isolation and um, withdrawal and return and call to arms and boon, but the the drivers in the heroine's journey are, are very different. Um, usually the um, the call to action for a, for a, a, and I'm using the word feminine and the words female and women uh, because they are biologically that way in the mythos, but if you're writing a character, they don't necessarily have to be biologically female. Um, you could make a very strong case, I think, in fact, that uh, Harry Potter, for example, is is actually engaging in a more of a, a female's um, heroine's journey than he is in a in a classic hero's journey. But so there's these sort of certain certain markers, much as with the hero's journey, that um, like the call to action is uh, something is something usually a, a familial relationship is taken away from the heroine, and that's what spurs her into action. So uh, Demeter's daughter is taken away, Isis's husband, and Ishtar's lover, um, and it's those moments that then drive the woman to act. Interestingly enough, in sort of popular conceptions of literature, that kind of thing is sort of frowned upon. So you're not supposed to have a main character that is driven to action by something else happening to them. They're supposed to make the choice to take action. And I I tend to, I think it's very interesting and very sort of psychological to look at the things that are regarded as good literature and bad literature in light of sort of some of the stances that we have on the hero's journey versus the heroine's journey. Um, one of those being that a call to action um, can be a choice that is forced upon you rather than something that is um, that you choose to do on your own. But th- And there are plenty more of things like that in, in the realm of, of what makes a heroine's journey. Uh, and one of those things, like I talked about before, is that the heroine goes through this process of testing um, kind of the cohesiveness of the people she encounters. So Demeter uh, takes on the guise of an old woman and becomes a nanny for family um, in order to see whether that family is a good host, how they treat their servants, all of these things, whether they deserve her good regard as a goddess. Um, And then through the process of their journey, it is usually through connections that they then realize so Demeter has to ask Hecate, she has to ask her sister what happened to her daughter before she can finally figure out what happened to Persephone. So it takes a sister's aid um, to find what she needs. So the, the idea is that um, it's very important in the heroine's journey to network and to establish connections, to draw on the connections that you have, uh, to reestablish the connections. So to find the daughter, Demeter has to find her daughter and bring her back and then negotiate kind of an exchange with Hades that allows her to stay in touch with her daughter, at least for some part of the year and those sorts of things. I mean, uh, Isis literally puts her husband back together. She goes over through the Nile Valley and pulls pieces of him together and then puts him back together. She must go to um, Osiris's brother, Anubis, to mummify him, to wrap him all up. But, I mean, that's you can hardly get more um, blatant than that, is that this idea that a, a woman's journey, so far as these ancient cultures are concerned, is this reunification, is this idea of, of hearth and home and holding everything together and pulling everything back together and pulling on these civilized connections for lack of a better word um and yes that's a very that's a very kind of patriarchal damning look at women to a certain extent but i also like the idea of kind of embracing that and and uh, so that i do that a lot in in my books and i like to encourage other writers to just think a little bit differently about how you might approach a a, a journey through time and space for your characters this idea of forming your own family and and building friendship and relationships and love as a noble thing rather than this idea that you have to pick up a sword and go slay the orcs all by yourself no that's very interesting i mean like you say it is the heroes or the heroine's journey and you automatically assume that it's going to be a singular journey just by themselves and the hero certainly has a mentor in part of joseph campbell's analysis Mm -hmm. he goes off and he leaves all that's familiar and he finds a mentor and he learns from the mentor and he goes on and he um, faces imminent disaster and then he excels. And you're right, it is all very, very singular. And the it's difficult because I have the same feeling as you in that it should be 
it shouldn't be a hero and a heroine. It just should be A and B. It's mm. it's not necessarily um, women that are going to naturally go towards family. I mean, I suppose that's traditionally how it is. But certainly nowadays with gender swapping and with so many more different and diverse mm-hmm. writers, why can't it just be, you know, the the introvert's journey or the extrovert's journey yeah. or something, something like that? You know, why yes. does it have to be hero and heroine? Yes, it's a very good... And we get nested in this, this modality... Um, of like masculine, feminine, male, female, um, which is very difficult, and it's also very difficult. And I, I'm I'm delighted to see that we are living in a world, um, despite resistance, that is at least acknowledging the sort of fluid nature of gender. Because as we go back to the anthropology thing, I mean that's something that we absolutely had to study um, for cultural anthropology. Is many cultures have third genders or alternate genders or. Um, and this idea that, that gender is a cultural construct, it's a construct of our society, biological sex, what you are born with, um, does not necessarily match up to gender. Um, and this is not a new idea throughout time or space. Um, and we have such crazy, um, amazing historical Creatures as, say, Hatshepsut, who's the queen of ancient Egypt, who, for all intents and purposes, was a king. She was a pharaoh of ancient Egypt, and she she looked, acted, thought, and um, at least left her marker on the archaeological record as a man. Um, and, you know, that that's that's not as, as, as uncommon as people like to pretend. Um, so, yeah, and I think the hero's journey and the heroine's journey... Are, kind of are due for a rewrite in terms of um, separating them a little bit more from the idea of man and woman and biological sex. Um, But for lack of any other terminology, it's what we have to work with at the moment until someone comes up with a better better one. Exactly. It's a useful tool. It's just making sure you apply it in the right circumstances these days. Exactly. And I guess that's what I would say to most writers is it's all very well to use the hero's journey, but recognize that there's an alternative storyline for you to access should you want it. And also, it behooves you to be aware that you're using it. I mean, I think some newer writers and especially younger writers can come off as quite amateurish just because they're pulling on archetypes and troops well established from these mythoses without realizing that they're doing it. And so, you can set up reader expectations and then satisfy them in such a way that it comes off as, as dull or, or pat or boring because we have, you know, thousands and thousands of years of the record of this myth. Um, so it's just a good idea to kind of educate yourself at least a little bit, especially if you're writing on, in genre, which draws upon it so, upon both of them so drastically. Well, it's interesting you should mention archetypes because that leads me on to uh, my next question, which was that it strikes me that Solus is about a young lady living in a man's world, and particularly a world mm-hmm. of science, and getting through it in her own unique way. But with your YA series, you've got the girls inhabiting a world traditionally reserved by men and making it completely and utterly their own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, would you say that's an accurate reflection of your stories? Yeah, I think so. So, um, and partly that's uh, also the nature, as I talked about, about that being at that, that different age and time period in your life, kind of now in the modern world, which is um, there's an optimism to youth, which is like, I can change the world. I really can. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that optimism. It's not naivete, I don't think. And I think uh, we do change the world when we're young um, in substantial ways that we don't even realize. And I'm thinking, you know, if we would just, what what we just talked about with the, the ideas of um, gender fluidity that are the product of, of people younger than myself, <laughs> we'll put it that way, quite distinctly. Um, whether they've been around forever um, or not, it, the seed change that's occurring in our culture has to do with young people's voices. Um, that might not be the the historical record that the millennials wish to leave behind, but I suspect that it will be. Um, so I think that's that's what I'm kind of tapping into with the young adult stuff is is this um, that, yeah, you can change the world and you, you should try. And then my next one, which is the college one is kind of like the world is going to change to accept me. So like, here I am going to do my thing, um, kind of damn the consequences, which is, which is a very, uh, collegiate attitude. (laughs) This is very true. That sounds fantastic. Now stepping aside from your books for a moment, uh, I've not had the pleasure of meeting you in person, but I've seen lots of pictures of you at conventions and you're always dressed (laughs) up to the nines in Victoriana. And I also saw on your blog that you cooked and served an entire Victorian meal. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's a lot of work. Let me just say. <laughs> did it, how did it turn out? Was it, was it good? Was it, well, did you kind of get I learned, hmm, I learned some really interesting things. Uh, one of which is, uh, so the, the recipes you have to, uh, Victorian recipes are kind of throw this and this together and put it in a hot oven, right? Like they're very loosey goosey by, by modern recipe comparisons, which is fine. Cause I've been cooking. I mean, I'm a, I consider myself a cook, so, uh, I'm pretty good at adapting on the fly. Um, but the recipe will say something like, a, we, for example, we learned that if you – it says a tablespoon of cayenne pepper. There was a – cayenne pepper was what the Victorians called all pepper, including like paprika. Anything mm. red pepper was called cayenne pepper, <laughs> not just cayenne pepper. And second of all, because spices would have traveled such a long distance and there's no plastic – they would have been a much less, they would have lost a lot of their potency by the time they got to London. So a tablespoon of cayenne pepper turns out to be too much for a pot of soup. <laughs> Just so you know. Um, so things like, we learn things like that. Um, but it was, it was really, really fun. It's, it's labor intensive. It took, it took three of us all day long to do it. Um, and you had to be preparing each course before you served it. So the three of us who were cooking it didn't really get a chance to sort of sit down and eat it. But it was it was it was really it was really fun to do. Um, but I have a history of doing that with my my friends. Actually, I have a couple of friends who are cooks and and foodies. And um, when I was a, more deeply enmeshed in archaeology, we used to do archaeological recipes. Uh, Pompeii, for example, has some recipes written on some of the walls. Uh, there's a Latin cookbook called the Apicus. Oh, yeah. um, and so we we would. I would get a bee in my bonnet about like, we're soon to do a Roman or we're going to do an Aztec meal or something. And so I would have to grow the herbs. <laughs> so this is a long process because you can't just get, get lovage. Um, and then we would get together and, and try and cook it. Uh, just because like I said about place and the smell of a place and the light um, in a different, you know, Florence versus Dartmoor, for example, uh, I feel like the taste of a place is also very important. So, you know, being able to kind of try to eat what the Romans eat is very helpful if you're excavating Romans, just as an extra point of insight. Um, so, yeah, I've always been into doing that kind of thing and historical reenactment and stuff. Well, I saw a TV program where they were doing something similar and recreating some of the food of the Romans, and they tried to recreate the amazing fish sauce that everybody loved, and oh. yet didn't turn out so good. <laughs> yeah. You know, Vietnamese fish, fish sauce, which you can get, is probably not too dissimilar. Um, but I've I've had homemade garum, and it's it's pretty nasty. <laughs> fermented, see, you know, fermented fish. But hey, there are. It's it's funny to think about, but that's I mean, but that in and of itself is totally fascinating because garum would have been made in these sort of huge vats out under the sun on the. Italian Riviera, which would have just stunk up the place. So these beautiful, picturesque towns that everybody vacations in now would have been totally verboten. Like nobody would have wanted to go there because they would have reeked of fish. Um, so kind of interesting insights into things like that. Certainly not something you'd read in a historical novel, I imagine. <laughs> no. <laughs> I love that kind of thing. I mean, like... Um, like the Greeks, when they fish for octopi, they tenderize them. So uh, they, uh, they do this by just like taking these octopi and sort of slapping them on the street. So you can imagine these sort of ancient Greek villages with the sound after the fishermen have come in of these like uh, slapping octopi. And then they hang them up on, on their clotheslines to, to kind of dry out a bit. You know, like they, just things like that makes me so happy. Alternatively, <laughs> <laughs> as a vegetarian, things like that just make me want to wince. <laughs> uh, Ah, see, I am a, I am a, I like to joke that, that my tombstone is going to read, she just wanted to eat it once. <laughs> I am always interested in trying something new. I'm like, my instinctive reaction is, does it taste good? And can I stick it in my mouth? <laughs> Which is probably going to kill me someday. <laughs> oh dear. Now on your website, you say, um, the quote was, my publishing houses have been really supportive of my crazy schemes. So I yes. wonder if you care to share with us some of the crazy schemes that your publisher has supported. Oh, gosh. Wow. Uh, that's hard to... <laughs> there have been so many over the years. I'm I'm kind of one of those authors who, you know, from something simple like them poodling up to me and being like, well, the fourth book in the Finishing School series is coming out. Would you mind if we, we dropped the ebook price on the first three to a buck ninety nine each? And I'm like... 
No, I don't mind. I mean, some authors would protest because your royalty rate's going to lower as a result of that. But I'm totally one for like, by all means, jump in, monkey with the price, give it a new cover, like fool around, do whatever. Um, to uh, to you know to them totally supporting the manga when I was like, hey, I'm going to do a graphic novel adaptation. Here we go, <laughs> you know. Um, which, you know, I, I mean, maybe not would wouldn't have been as uh, acceptable under other circumstances to like just the kind of stuff they let me get away with writing wise. I mean, I can be pretty wild at this juncture. I guess I've stood the test of time, but um, I can get quite silly and absurd and, and they kind of don't really bother to rein me in anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, but to, I guess to other stuff, like just uh, sort of my early forays into online self promotion and, um, you know, establishing newsletters and, and things like the Parasol Protectorate group, which, you know, I was just like, hey, I'm going to do this. Like, <laughs> hope you're okay with that. Um, yeah, and they're, they're pretty much like, oh, that's just Gail being Gail again. <laughs> I think it's the <laughs> attitude. I mean, I think I kind of led them in because the when I first met them, I, I kind of chivvied up in like 1950s garb. It was, you know, a total persona and attitude already in place and I'm sort of like take it or leave it here's your crazy author you ready for this <laughs> and they they were like not only are we ready but we're going to send you out on a book tour <laughs> fantastic so my final question for you this evening incredibly serious are you ready oh I'm ready right I read that your favorite tea is English breakfast but that yes. the milk has to go into the cup first so what is the yes. rationale behind this crazy behavior <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I know it's very plebeian. Um, this is the way I was raised. Well, just this is the way my mother raised me. Um, I have taste tested. I'm a scientist, so I did a double blind taste test, and you cannot taste the difference. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, whether the milk goes in first or second, you can't taste the difference. Um, uh, I hate to say it. So the original rumored rationale was that if you put the milk in first, then when you put the boiling hot water of the tea in second, then the porcelain cup doesn't fracture or shatter, to which me, as the archaeologist, used to get very upset because porcelain wouldn't like that it's just it's just not heat sensitive like that i'm I'm sorry to say everybody, but um that's my uh I'm, my uh expertise is in ceramics so it doesn't it just doesn't do that like put boiling water into it it'll be fine um you see that's so interesting because that... the version i heard was oh that... i got yeah, no, the version I had was that you put it in first if you were poor because you didn't have porcelain and the cups that you had weren't um, uh, solid uh, enough to cope with um, having boiling water put on them. So the aristocracy be- would put the tea in first because they had nice porcelain and could do. But if you were cheap and you didn't have good porcelain, you put the milk in first because it then just stopped it cracking. Uh, I think earthenware at the time period is, is fine as well. So I don't think either. I think that's... Either of those. Now, the other one I heard was that you put the tea in first because um, if the milk, I mean, you put the milk in first because if the milk is close to turning, then um, putting hot into cold keeps the milk from curdling. Whereas um, the aristocracy could afford, if if they poured the milk into their tea and it curdled, they could afford to just throw away the tea and start fresh with new milk and everything would be fine. Whereas if you're poor, you can't do that kind of thing. Uh, I, speaking purely as an archaeologist um, with some historical background, I don't think um, it has. We, as humans, love to try and come up with a logical explanation for our entirely illogical actions. And I think there just isn't one in this circumstance. Some people do it some way, some people do it the other way, and then it's just been passed on through the generations. Um, And there is no rhyme, no reason. (laughs) Um, It's a very unsatisfactory answer. Uh, So my response is that my mother taught me to do it that way, so that's how I do it. But uh, since I mostly drink with a tea bag, and I don't believe in allowing the milk to touch the tea bag... Um, I actually put the milk in second when I'm just like drinking a mug of tea of a morning. So, Fantastic. and frankly, uh, you also can't tell the difference if it came from a tea bag or from uh, loose leaf. <laughs> well, unless you find little bits of tea in the bottom of it, I suppose. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a bit of a giveaway. True. That's true. But there is something lovely and civilized to you know having a proper ritual pot where you warm the pot and you put the leaf in and you have your. You have your whole service out, you know, and I will do that occasionally on the weekend just for the formality of it. It's, it's very, um, 
the, the ritual is very satisfying. Well, I must admit, I put my milk in second, but that's only because it makes such pretty patterns when you pour it in through the dark <laughs> liquid. You see? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> you must make your tea quite strong then. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. That's the only way to have it. I can see we're, we're going to fall out about this, aren't we? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm a strong, strong. Uh, as my mother uh, likes to say, strong enough for a mouse to run across. Um, oh. Very strong. Yeah. And and I always and I feel also very very strongly uh, that if you if the tea isn't good that strong then it's not good tea <laughs> you need to switch whatever tea you're using if if it gets too tannicky or bitter or something then it's time to to pick a different brand you're, you're not you're not drinking the right thing if if it's not good strong and it's not good then it's the tea tea should be perfect with just a dollop of milk you shouldn't need to add sugar it should. I love, Serious business. I, say, I love the fact that we came to talk about books and we've ended by talking about tea. So, Well, they go hand in hand. They do indeed. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Gail Carriger, author of Heroes and Heroines and Zombie Porcupines. <laughs> uh, it's been lovely to speak to you. Um, thank you for staying up in the afternoon while I'm staying up very late to, to have this conversation. <laughs> and uh, your readers are cordially reminded that smiles are compulsory when reading your books. Uh... Aw, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming, Gail. This is Charlotte Bond, and you've been listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Please join us again soon. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>